I am joined by Jay Shabbat, founder of Railroad Weekly and Airline Weekly. Jason is an expert and an industry specialist on airlines and railroads, as you can expect uh, from those titles. Jay, great to have you here. Welcome to Four Guidance. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Great to be here. Jay, let's start off with airlines, because I think you know, a lot more people have been on an airline than a you know, sort of a freight rail car. Uh, how is How would you describe the health of the U.S. airline industry? Let's start domestic. Uh, I know it was, a, it was a, you know, a crap show in 2020, and it gradually became less so. Is it fair to say that business is booming right now? And, and what might that indicate about the broader U.S. economy? Or is it kind of you know, not super representative? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's super representative, but I'll, I'll say a few words about the airline, current state of the airline industry. And I think your characterization as you know a crap show in 2020 is perfectly accurate. It's the worst year in airline industry history because of the pandemic. 2021 was a little bit better, but not much. And then 2022 was very much a, a, a comeback year. It wasn't spectacular financially, and I can give you some numbers on that just to give you and I guess we'll stick. I do cover airlines globally, but for, for this conversation, I guess we'll stick with the U.S. airlines and feel free to follow up on anything international. But, you know, the uh, so there's about there's 11 sort of major U.S. airlines are all publicly traded um, and they earned a collective operating margin of about four uh, percent in 2022, which is, you know, it's not going to blow, <laughs> blow anybody's roof off. But but uh, it was an important comeback year. There were some kind of strange anomalies about that year. Now, in 2023, the airline industry, the U.S. airlines in particular, have three very big tailwinds. One is that the the price of fuel is down quite substantially year over year. That was a big problem in 2021. Not so much a problem in 2020, or sorry, 2022. Not so much of a problem in 2023. The other big tailwind is that demand is just gangbusters. It's never been this good. I mean, just... Americans getting on planes everywhere, you know, domestic, international, you name it. It's it's hard to find markets that are that are weak right now. I could tell you a few, but there's there's not many. And then the third thing is that the supply situation is very constricted. And that has a lot to do with some of these supply side, you know, shortages that you hear about supply chain issues. Boeing and Airbus are having difficulty delivering planes. Uh, the engine makers are having difficulty with uh, some of their technology, uh, some labor issues. Some of the things you've been reading about in the news about how, you know, some of probably people watching this have been stranded at airports over this, you know, recently. That has to do with air traffic control shortages. A lot of it does anyway. So, uh, so, but, but because of those supply issues, that, that is helping to push up the fares, helping to push up yields, which in turn is pushing up margins. So it's going to be a good, it should be a good year. So demand was somewhat booming last year, but financially profits were not that high because the price of jet fuel was high, which is very related to the price of oil. You know, price of oil went to $120. Now the price of oil is down, but demand, as you say, is perhaps even more gangbusters. Can you just give us some numbers on whether it's, you know, the amount of miles flown, the amount of revenue, what is it, you know, revenue per average seat mile, you you tell us. And then also tell us about the profitability, because I know in, let's say, 2020 and 2021, people said, okay, Travel is going to come back, and it's going to be higher than it is now because it's at a so artificially depressed level in 2020. But the business travelers aren't going to be there. You know, people aren't going to take a flight from New York to Chicago just to shake someone's hand. They're going to do that over Zoom. That business is dead, or, or you know, it's partially dead, and that is where all the profit is in terms of the margin. How much has that prediction played out, or is that not accurate? 
So let me let me first uh, respond by talking about the business, or sometimes we call corporate traffic. This is um, you know the very big companies sign contracts with the airlines where you know we'll fly X million dollars worth of you know flights. You give us this discount. You allow us our comp- our employees to upgrade to first class. That kind of thing. So as you mentioned, that was a very very important segment of the of the industry which is still down in volume terms maybe 20 percent from where it was in 2019 pre-pandemic however in revenue terms it's about even or perhaps even in some cases even up and that's business travel like business class first class no we're not talking about the, the the particular classes of service here i mean it's loosely correlated but i'm talking about people traveling for the purpose of business got it okay, okay. and specifically people that are working for these big bigger corporations like not, you know, I own a small two-person, you know, company and I'm flying for business. Not really counting that. That that's actually very healthy. Um, kind of individual, you know, small business travel, small and medium enterprise. That's that's very healthy. Um, the stuff that's really down is the like the tech sector. Like if you look at a company like Alaska Airlines over on the West Coast, they're they're actually despite their name, they're based in Seattle. Um, a lot of their travel is, you know, Google, Amazon, as you'd expect, you know, West Coast corporate. They're they're feeling it the worst because as you imagine, these IT companies, they're, you know, gonna be most inclined to do video conferencing, things like that. Mm. But even there, I mean, even Alaska's doing fine because yes, the corporate volumes are down, but whatever corporate is there, the prices are up, the fares are up. And then on top of that, the leisure is so strong. So it's it's um yeah, it's it's not a very big, I mean, still open question of how, to what extent that corporate travel comes back, even in volume terms. But right now it's really, it's not that big of a, you know, depressing factor. It's the airlines are fine with it. And so just in terms of broad numbers, what is total uh, flying look like relative to 2019, you know, which is the best barometer. And I think it's what's called TSA throughput of like how many people went through the TSA check every day. Yeah, there's different ways to measure. So TSA three throughput is is the volume terms. You could also measure in capacity, like how many seats the, the airlines are flying. We're pretty much back to 2019 capacity now. Some airlines are way ahead. I mean, if you look at a low cost airline like Frontier Airlines, Spirit Airlines, they're much bigger now than they were in 2019. Then there's a few. I think Delta's the biggest laggard. They're still a little smaller. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but collectively across the whole U.S. industry, um, we're probably close to equal in terms of capacity, in terms of volumes, airport volumes. And then of course, that's going to vary a lot. You know, you're going to have some airports like in booming Austin, Texas, where, you know, much busier today than four years ago. And then you're going to have, you know, other airports. uh, I don't can't think of one off the top of my head, but there's others that are, you know, Philadelphia, for example, maybe a little more struggling to come back because of different things that are different strategies of airlines have taken in different places, that kind of thing. So if the throughput people going through is it's roughly the same as 2019, is it fair to say that demand is actually the same as 2019? It's just that supply is is less so that demand is booming relative to the expectations of 2020 and 2021 uh, when everyone thought, oh, my God, airplanes, who needs them? Yeah, I mean, I think I should, when you when you talk about the strong demand, don't think of that as extreme volume growth. Think of it as extreme well, I won't say extreme pricing growth, but the 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 unit revenues, which is a good way to measure fares, they're they're, they're up substantially. Um, and then there are certain markets. I mean, this summer, I mean, go try to book a ticket to Europe this summer. 
um, much more expensive than it would have been, you know, all else being equal than it would have been four years ago. Uh, so the, the we, uh, yields is another way of measuring. Uh, that's just, you know, what you're charging to fly one seat, one mile, or sorry, one passenger, one mile. That is, it's just much stronger now than it was four years ago, pre-pandemic. And, and a lot of that, as you suggested, is supply, supply side, but it's demand as well. You know, people want to get out. Got it. So I'm just looking at the, you know, it's a very macro way of doing it, but uh, airline fares in US for the, from the consumer price index. And so in May of 2022, it was about 50% higher than May of 2021. So substantially higher. So profit profits are higher, it's fair to say? No, because that's just the, uh, you know, that's the price index. And I'm not exactly sure how the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does that. I know the, the Bureau of Transportation Statistics kind of looks at that as well. And it's not something, uh, it, it's t- it's very difficult to measure airfares because it depends on what you're included, at least in the aggregate. Um, and honestly, I don't know off the top of my head how the BLS does it. But uh, but but to directly answer your question, yeah. no, it doesn't necessarily mean just because a fare index is up that you're going to be profitable if your fuel is you know way up as it was in 2022. So uh yeah, it's just just a combination of all those forces. Um, but yeah, on the on the fair side, on the demand side, it's a very str- it's a very good picture right now for sure. Now everybody's waiting to see, you know, is how long is this going to last? Traditionally, in the fall after the peak summer travel, you know, kids are back in school, all that. Typically, you know, things start to soften. There are no signs of that yet. I mean, anecdotally, you know, I'm starting to hear that there are, but. We're going to find out a lot more. So next Thursday is the beginning of second quarter airline earnings season. So Delta kicks things off on Thursday, and then we'll have over the course of the next you know three, four, five weeks, we'll get a much you know clearer picture of how the bookings. One thing nice about airline demand is you kind of can see the future because bookings are coming in constantly for future travel. So airlines already know how the fall is. You know they don't know completely because some people book at the last minute. Um, but we already we're going to already have an idea of of what things are going to be looking like, and we'll we'll find that out in a couple of weeks. And what do you think demand will continue to be? I mean, do you think demand will continue to be as gangbusters as it is? And you know, if you don't have a, a you know strict forecast in, in in a crystal ball, what factors might you be looking to, such as oh, there's a correlation between the economy and excess savings, uh, work from home other types of things, what factors would go into that calculation? So there's absolutely a, a correlation with, with the economy. Uh, you know, we, I, I watch your show all the time, Jack, and it's, uh, you know, guest after guest, recession is coming, recession is coming. And it just, you know, it doesn't. And uh, it, to me, it's not terribly surprising from what I can see, you know, fuel, you know, gas prices are down, job market's still healthy. I mean, even I've heard guests on your show say that, uh, you know, even the fact that the Fed is increasing interest rates, maybe that puts more people in the pockets of, you know, people who are saving money. That's that's spending power. Um, you know, on top of all that, you have, uh, you know, a lot of fiscal stimulus still floating through. And that's, you know, on the railroad side, I see a lot of that, um, you know, railroads carrying materials for these huge construction projects that are going in with, you know, uh, federal stimulus money, semiconductor plants, auto plants, all sorts of stuff. So, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to see the any, you know, spending deterioration or a recession coming. Now, we all know, you know, the risks inherent with the higher interest rates and, 
and all the other risks that are out there. So it's uh, certainly not a slam dunk, but, um, you know, not seeing yet. Now, there is a possibility that perhaps we're just going to, you know, divert back to the mean where things were, you know, kind of as they were in 2019. And you had this huge depression. And now you kind of have all this like revenge travel or makeup travel mm-hmm. that everybody, you know, everybody wants to get an airplane. Maybe they're getting it out of that system, getting it out of their system and then come, you know, come the fall, maybe it's next year and things start to sort of normalize that nobody knows. Um, but, uh, but, you know, as of right now, it still looks pretty healthy. And I think the airlines will tell you that as long as the supply situation remains as it is, which, you know, we're looking like that's a multi-year thing, you know, based on what we can see of Boeing and Airbus and just their inability to deliver planes, uh, that, that in itself is pre- because it's going to last a while. I think airlines are generally feeling pretty optimistic about the next couple of years. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen in fuel. Now, the thing we haven't talked about, so fuel is generally the single largest cost item that an airline will have. It kind of runs neck and neck with labor. Now on the labor side, labor has been very inflationary. So, you know, we talk about how the economy is challenged by inflation. Well, in a sense, the airlines don't have that challenge because fuel price has been very deflationary over the past year. However, everything non-fuel is it's what you read about in the newspapers. You know, labor costs are up, airport costs are up, material costs are up, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that is another wild card. You know, they are, airlines are, I mean, Delta just signed a very, very expensive new pilot contract. And American, I believe, has one out for ratification right now. United and Southwest pilots are clamoring for their deal. They're going to get something similar at some point. So there's that to consider as well. Yeah, just going back to the point about everyone calling a recession. I mean, I think Bloomberg had a 99 or 100% recession <laughs> forecast in, in this fall of last year. I saw a really funny tweet the other day, something like, honey, we got to cancel our trip to Disneyland because there's an inverted yield curve. right i mean you've got all these signals that are saying you know recession 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 and it still might be right but 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 you know certainly from the airline perspective there now now i should also say that you know in in 2021 let's say um and at this time during 2021 i was actually writing a newsletter about the u.s economy called econ weekly and it's uh econweekly.substack.com you can check out my old stuff on there but um it's pretty much every industry in the United States was, was booming. If you go through, you know, everything from agriculture to, you know, the, the computer chip companies to the, uh, you know, housing was booming and all this stuff. But the one thing that very much wasn't booming was of course, travel and leisure. Now that's kind of flipped where travel and leisure is kind of at the head of the curve and, you know, housing is slumping and, you know, whatever IT is slumping. Although housing was slumping, there, there's some signs that it's not slumping anymore, though. I have seen the recent, yeah, housing starts look pretty good for last month. So who knows? Yeah, maybe even that's coming back. Maybe maybe there's no no landing, no, whether hard or soft. Maybe we're just, you know, <laughs> maybe we'll just stay aloft like an airline. Like an yeah, airplane. exactly. That's the real hire for longer is this, the, the airplanes. Um, so what was I going to say? Uh, so, oh, is there any compositional things of interest with regards to, uh, you know, regular class, business class, and first class. And I know it's even more complicated now because you have all these fees. But, uh, you know, if, if you say in a very good recession, in, in, sorry, in a very healthy economy, a lot of people are flying first class, whereas, you know, when people are really watching their wallets, like no one's flying first class. Are you seeing anything there relative to 2019 or before across the airlines that is of interest that might indicate something or, or not really? 
Yeah, so so the premium segment is very, very strong right now and no signs of that letting up, which is kind of, it almost seems a little counterintuitive because you would think, well, if the corporate travel is down, like I was talking to you about, you know, those are the people who traditionally buy the first class seats, the business class seats. But um, a lot of company or a lot of individuals just, you know, uh, I don't want to see wealthy individuals, but just, you know, people with, with disposable income that are purchasing upgrades or, you know, outright buying, buying the business class tickets. Um, so that, so airlines are actually expanding their premium uh, cabins. They're adding more um, premium seats. Not all of them, you know, everybody's different business models, but there are three giant airlines in the U.S., maybe, you know, say intercontinental airlines, and that's Delta, United, and American. And they're all pretty much, you know, they're seeing the same thing. Uh, premium is doing great. Um, and because it's a little, little bit more of a complicated discussion, but roughly speaking, because of these supply constraints, uh, the airlines don't have to fill as many seats. They're kind of, Delta especially, kind of taking the approach like, we don't want to sell Honda Civics anymore. We want to sell BMWs. And so they're really going after the premium traveler. And not, not, don't confuse that with business traveler, but people with yeah. disposable income. And, you know, there's that stat out there, you know, what the baby boomer generation is sitting on $75 trillion in wealth. There's really kind of a concerted effort to go after that money. And uh, so, so there's that. Now, having said that, I mean, you know, the, if you've been on a flight, you know, the, the leisure cab, the, the back of the planes are also very full right now. And the airlines that specialize in low cost travel are doing just fine. You know, your frontiers, Allegiant Air uh, in the U.S. is the most profitable airline in the U.S. It's been that way for a long time. Very right. unique business model, uh, you know, much smaller than a Delta American, but uh, they're, they're doing fine as well. So. And it's it's a little surprising to me, given like, let's say there's a seven hour flight, uh, you know, regular costs three hundred dollars, and first class costs thousand dollars, business class costs thousand dollars. It's like a seven hundred dollar premium for seven hours. So it's like you're kind of by not flying first class and getting the regular seat, you're kind of making a hundred dollars an hour. It's pretty interesting to me that you know a lot of people, you know, go <laughs> pay so much more for something that I don't know if it's worth it, just personally. Yeah. And traditionally, like I said, that's usually not your money. That was your company's money. So they, you know, and the theory is, okay, the company's going to pay if the employee's going to get a better night's sleep or whatever. Um, and, it's, and, and it's, you mentioned seven hours, which is, you know, more or less the cutoff. Seven hours is about Europe. Um, if you're certainly if you're going to Asia, that becomes even more valuable uh, from the United States. So, and then there's just a ton of travel going on now between, you know, we've seen over like the last decade, decade and a half, just a lot of these ultra long haul journeys have, have started to, uh, you know, things going through Dubai to Australia and, you know, Singapore to this and that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, people will pay for that. And increasingly, like I mentioned, what we're seeing post pandemic is increasingly people are paying for that out of their own pocket. You know, I want to go to Europe, Europe this summer with my, with my spouse and, uh, I'm just going to pay the extra, you know, thousand bucks or, or I have miles and I'm going to, you know, these, these mileage programs are, mm. are huge profit centers for the airlines. Very, very big cash cows. In fact, Skift, my, my employer who publishes Airline Weekly, we actually put out a recent report on, uh, on loyalty programs. You can check that out. But uh, yeah, very big, especially in the U.S., true abroad, but mo more so in the U.S. And they basically, it's, it's, it's simply, simply put, uh, you know, Delta will, go and sell the miles to an American Express, for example, so that they can use it for their customers, for their credit cards. 
and Delta will just, I mean, that's a $2 billion, $3 billion relationship or something. It's huge, huge money. Sorry to interrupt. Wanted to let you know about BlockWorks' upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September, 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, rollups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are gonna be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks, let's get back to the episode. Tell us, so we've covered domestically, it's, you know, was very weak and now is very strong. What about international? I know for, for, for 2020, it was exceptionally anemic. And then in 2021, even go from, from you know, US to China, it was not at all really uh, much business there at all. What does it look like internationally now? Because a lot of, uh, you know, flights are international, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the, uh, everything to Europe is totally gangbusters. I mean, Europe is, uh, this is going to be the best transatlantic season ever that the airlines ever experienced. Um, and some of that is, has to do with some of the European airlines have taken out capacity. So it's, it's, it's not just a demand situation, it's a supply situation as well, but it's just going to be a very, very, uh, you know, very, very good season on the, on Europe. So then you have Latin America, also very good. I mean, there's, you know, you can break these markets down at different sub-markets. So there's sort of short haul South America slash Caribbean. Um, a lot of that is leisure down into the Colombia, for example, that a lot of that is, uh, you know, people, vis- immigrants visiting or, you know, visiting your family down there kind of thing. Um, then you have the deep South America stuff, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, all that's doing, doing very well. Asia is starting to come back a lot. I'd say about four or five months ago. Now remember that a lot of these markets, particularly Asia, but even, even some European, um, a lot of these markets were largely closed until relatively recently. So Asia didn't really start opening up until the end of 2022. And then in China, I think it was just the beginning of this year. And China um, is a huge percentage of, tra- of travel, right? From Asia. Well, not for the US. So for the US, China's a rather negligible market. Mm. It's so Delta, American and United are the only three airlines that fly to China. Uh, and it's just not that much capacity. Uh, you know, United pre-pandemic was flying. You can imagine they have a hub in San Francisco. So they're flying a lot of tech travel to, you know, Apple has a factory in Chengdu, for example, in, in, out in China, in the middle of China. So there, there, there was, you know, there was good business for them for a while, but it, but it's, nobody's really getting hurt that much by losing China, the U.S. guys. Now, China is the second biggest market in the world in terms of total air travel. A lot of that is domestic. A lot of that is outbound China going, you know, Chinese tourists visiting Thailand or, you know, Europe is starting to come back as well. Um, another little quirk about uh, why, why the U.S.-China market is still very depressed is that so a lot of these markets are governed by bilateral treaties. So you're allowed to fly this many flights to my country. I'm allowed to fly this many. So, so, so that is very restricted right now. Um, and one of the reasons the U.S. and China can't, as they can't agree on many things these days, they can't agree on the number of flights, partially because of this Russia overfly situation. The U.S. airlines are not allowed to overfly Russia. Chinese airlines can. So getting between most U.S. and Chinese destinations, the quickest route is over Russia. So the U.S. airlines are saying, hey, that's no fair. And so the State Department is, you know, not, they're, they're a little bit, you know, they're, they're holding out on that. So 
that market. So, but, but China is very much an anomaly. Japan is starting to come back. Some quirks there too. You know, a lot of outbound travel to, to, to Hawaii, for example, is one specific, you know, Japanese tourist to Hawaii. But the yen's super weak, so it's it's good for yes. American tourists, but or non-Japanese tourists, but bad for Japanese tourists. Correct. So Hawaiian Airlines is an interesting case study, and that's you know I don't want to get too much in the specifics here, but um, for this program, but the Hawaiian Airlines is a very interesting airline, doing fantastically well during the 2010s, having a really 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 rough time right now because Japanese tourists are just not coming. They're not coming because, as you said, the yen's been very weak. Probably other reasons too. A lot of Japanese have been just traveling domestically. There have been some government incentive programs to tour at home and things like that. But that that's you know that's a very specific example. To go back to the original question though, international minus these you know China, a few others, very very healthy right now. Very healthy, with the exception of U.S. and China. Yeah, mm-hmm. got it. Okay, thanks. So we're going and again, to get that, to that's not to- a big market. I just want to stress that that U.S. China is not a big market. For, okay. for the U.S. carriers, it's just not that important. Th- I, I didn't know that. Thanks thanks for laying that out. Okay, so for, for the railheads out there who are like, okay, this airline stuff, it's okay, but I want to get to the rails. Don't worry. We're going to get there. But just a, a few final questions about the airlines is, can you just outline how historically airlines have been a very uh, you know bad business? And uh, you actually wrote a book, uh, Glory Lost and Found, about Delta, about how Delta has tried to you know, struggle to overcome after uh, these barriers after it went bankrupt. But you know, is it fair to say that you know, historically, most airlines have gone bankrupt? Yeah, yeah. So, so Glory Lost and Found was, as you mentioned, that was a, sto- a book that I wrote about Delta Airlines and their experience going through bankruptcy. They, they, Delta, if you go back, you know, uh, decades, uh, 1950s, 60s, they're always a very, you know, considered one of the best airlines, one of the most profitable airlines. They ran into a ton of trouble after 9-11, as did many airlines. Um, they had a few unique uh, challenges. Um, and they went bankrupt in 2005. Then in 2008, uh, they merged with Northwest Airlines and really created a very strong and durable company that's pretty much been profitable ever since, even through the 2008-09 recession, which is a very bad one. They did lose money, but it was mostly about hedge losses, whatever. You take away those special items, and even then, they did okay. So U.S. airlines have been are much more resilient now than they used to be. Now, having said that, it's still a very capitally intensive industry. It's a very labor-intensive industry. You're constantly subject to anything. I mean, you you read the news, and anything that goes bad in the world, it's the airline's problem. It's a pandemic, fuel shock, recession, whatever it is. So they are, so it is a very, very difficult business. Now, there are a couple of reasons why the U.S. airline industry in particular has become more resilient. I mean, when I started writing about airlines in 2000, I mean, I started working at U.S. Airways, the old U.S. Airways, which is now American, back in 1996. Oh. So, yeah, and I, and I started writing Airline Weekly in 2004. And back then, the airline was an absolute mess, partly because it was so fragmented. What's happened over the course of time that's become more consolidated. When we, get with the, when we get to the railroads, we'll talk really about consolidation, but the we've had about six, I believe, very, very large mergers over since about 2005. I mean, US Airways America West was 2005, and then there was a bunch of, bunch of them since. Um, we can go through them, but, but, they, but th- there was a bunch of really big ones. So we're down to really just the three intercontinental giants, Southwest is, is the biggest domestic airline. 
Then you have Alaska and JetBlue, and JetBlue is actually trying to merge with Spirit, subject to regulatory review. Big question whether or not they'll be approved. But that is enough. That would be add another you know round of consolidation, help kind of firm up you know the industry's earnings. Uh, and then you have your low cost carriers and whatnot. I think I said there's 11 airlines in all. You have some regional airlines on top of that, but that's that's a different business model. Uh, so yeah, that's a, consolidation is probably the number one reason why why airlines have been you know, able to, minus the pandemic, which is a very unusual shock, um, have been able to, bring, I mean, throughout the 2010s, airlines, U.S. airlines are consistently profitable, particularly the second half of the 2010s. And uh, there have been other reasons, you know, charging for ancillaries, you know, the fees that everybody hates, the bags. Mm-hmm. and this, That's been very, um, you know, that's fallen to, a lot of that's fallen to the bottom line. That's been very helpful. Um, industry with a lot more capacity discipline in the past, uh, joint ventures. Um, so now, you know, if Delta's flying to France, they're not doing it on their own. They're doing it with Air France. So they can use Air France's sales, you know, resources on the other end to sell tickets to, to the, you know, so it's a lot, lot, there have been quite a few reasons why the industry is more resilient. Now, if we, if this discussion were to move to other realms of the earth and other regions, it, it, it might be a different conversation, but U.S., pretty healthy. Yeah, and so uh, some consolidation in the airline industry, and also some some you know business tactics to kind of tame the volatility. You mentioned the points; we'll sell that in the forward market. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, hedge, hedging fuel costs, and then the joint ventures point is is a, is a great uh, point. I, I didn't know about, but it, I think a lot of airlines would have really struggled. If maybe maybe some would have gone bankrupt had it not been for the extraordinary amount of government assistance uh, in March and April 2020. Wasn't it true? A lot of U.S. airlines got loans literally from the government, and then the uh, airlines paid the paid it back immediately because they were able to issue bonds uh, in the markets at a very low coupon. And I would say that the Federal Reserve's, you know, over you know trillion dollars quantitative easing did, did a lot to, to assist with that. So, you know, Federal Reserve, part of the government. So there's a lot of, of help that uh, the government gave the airlines uh, as it, the fundamentals of its business were very, very weak. And I also want to say, you know, because people in, I posted about this on Twitter and folks said I should ask you about this. To what extent did, did COVID lockdowns and government mandated uh, lockdowns cause a depression in airline demand? Or how much of it was actually, I'm not flying, not because the government's telling me not to fly, but because I don't want to fly. You know, it was kind of natural private sector. Yeah, I think so. So the answer to your first question, government aid, yeah. So there, there's been two kind of major uh, examples of, of heavy government aid to the U.S. airline industry since 2000. One was after 9-11, uh, and one was during the COVID crisis. So as you said, the, uh, the U.S. government did step in. Pretty much the whole industry would have been bankrupt um, in this COVID. The COVID situation was just nothing. Like I mean, I remember 9-11. I, w- I was working for Air France at the time in New York City, about a mile away from the towers. I remember it very well. Uh, it was a very rough shock, but they re- it, was, it was a it wasn't that long before airlines were able to manage it. And then there were certain airlines in the world that were doing okay, you know, that weren't exposed to the U.S. or whatever. COVID was something completely different. COVID was just, you know, the whole basically earth was, you know, air, airline just, airline, air travel just froze. Now, was that because of government mandates or because, hard to say, but, um, you know, I don't know what the, what, what the exact reason was. There, there's, I'm sure, some people that were willing. There was actually one major market that was open to Americans if they wanted to go. And that was Mexico, Mexico largest state open. So if you look at, you know, the one 
Um, Cancun is actually like the, the fastest growing airport in the world. If you look like today versus 2019, because of all the, uh, all the capacity that they, uh, were able to add a lot of Americans went down there. Um, well, I would say a lot, but it was, uh, no, yeah, was I, I saw some op-eds around that period of, uh, Mexicans complaining about Americans coming over and, you know, working from Mexico and they'd have a higher you know, salary and they were kind of, you know, ruining the vibe of the neighborhood. So anecdotally yeah, there, yeah. But- I mean, there's that, and that, and that kind of uh, that idea continues with the whole, uh, you know, remote working. Is uh, people are doing that now everywhere, and if some airlines think that's going to be, uh, you know, a stimulant to demand that uh, all these people now are, hey, we don't, you know, we don't have to worry about how much vacation time we want to go work somewhere else. We just go go out there and we'll fly. So, you know, hard to say. I think these trends are still still panning out, but the government aid, actually, um, absolutely. Now, now, keep in mind that it wasn't just U.S. airlines that got government aid. It was pretty much almost every airline on earth. There are a couple of exceptions regionally. Latin America did not generally provide much aid to their airlines during COVID. And so they all went bankrupt. Uh, they didn't disappear. I mean, all the big ones, Aeromexico went bankrupt. Avianca went bankrupt at the Colombian airline. So are they now owned by the former bondholders? Bondholders became stockholders? Well, in different situations, different because because most of them, will come, I don't know how many are out of. I know Latam, for example, is out of bankruptcy. The owners basically uh, there were there were some new funds that came in to put in some money, but Delta is, for example, I think owns I don't know like a tenth of the airline before, and they still do. So they participated in the bankruptcy restructuring. They reinvested. Um, Qatar Airways is another one that uh, that owns part of Latam. That's that's the main. That's the largest airline in South America, and they were very strong before the pandemic and the government just no aid. So they just, they had nothing, you know, no choice. They had to go bankrupt. Uh, so, you know, and there's a couple UK, actually another place that Virgin Atlantic went bankrupt. Now that's an airline that's never really been Virgin Atlantic is uh, people, people kind of think Virgin, the Virgin Atlantic is a strong airline because their brand is very strong, but they, I, they, they never make any money. So they, yeah. Uh, but but anyway, yeah, it's um it does most you know if you go to Asia, if you go to most of Europe, uh, Canada, uh, Canada was a little bit stingy as well. But 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 in general, government aid was kind of uh, it was uh, and it was it was in all sorts of you know all all different uh, types. You know there were tax breaks and uh, like I say great. So in the U.S., we did something where the government actually stepped in and paid for basically took assumed payroll for the airlines so that they didn't have to lay off all of was the, this just a PPP loan times a million basically yeah I think so I don't know if it was uh, precisely but they, they part weren't of the paying PPP. they they made a very uh generous loan that maybe didn't have to be paid back provided people stayed on the payroll which happened you know in many small businesses across America it's just that this is a huge airline yeah and I was I have to I was actually out of the industry during this time so um, I don't remember all the details, but the but generally speaking, the government said, you know, we'll provide this money, but you know, there's different conditions. You can't do stock buybacks. You can't pay dividends. And then the big one was that you had to you can't fire anybody. You had to keep people on payroll. Now they were able to reduce their headcount quite substantially through voluntary separations. So you know, retire early retirement programs, and buyouts, buyouts. Yeah. buyouts. So, uh, but they weren't allowed to fire anybody, which, you know, you can argue that was good policy. I mean, if, if you're getting government money, yeah, you strings attached for sure. 
Yeah, or, or even from the government perspective, you don't want all these pilots just sitting idle for a year because, you know, they lose they they lose their training. You know, you can't just get back on an airplane the next day when it opens. You have to go through recurrent training and things like that. So you would, you know, you would have had a situation where the airline industry would have been, you know, crippled for an extended period of time. So there was, you know, there were some probably some good reasons why they did that. Now Boeing actually got a big bailout as well. So, uh, you know, it wasn't just the airlines, but um, but across the ecosystem. And let's let's move on to the, the railroads. And, yeah, so I just want to say when it comes, I think your specialty when it comes to airlines is moving people, moving passengers. And then your specialty uh, when it comes to railroads is freight. So not passengers, it's, it's, it's goods. So what are you seeing there? Uh, how about we start with the cyclical instead of, you know, we'll talk about the secular trends for, for uh, uh, rails later, but... Uh, what was rail demand like during 2020 and 2021, and what does it look like now? Is it a similar story to air or different? Different. Let, let me just start by I give you a comparison. So I think I mentioned earlier that in 2022, the U.S. airlines earned a collective operating profit of did I say five percent? I think it was five, maybe four. You said four, but yeah, four or five percent. Four or five. I think did I write it down somewhere? Yeah, four. If I call it call it four. Um, the rail. <laughs> The North American railroads, and I'm talking, I cover Canada and the U.S. And, and Mexico as well, but let's just Canada and the U.S. The collective operating profit was 38%. So you can you can get a sense of how extraordinarily profitable. I mean, this, these are these are Microsoft type margins that you're earning in the railroad industry. Yeah. Um, and there's there's six big ones in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so just to give you a little bit of the structure, um, there was just one. Another, there were seven. There was just a merger that happened a couple of weeks ago, actually. It was just finalized. With who? Between Canadian Pacific, they're based in Calgary, and Kansas City Southern, which was based, uh, as you imagine, in Kansas City. Um, so they're now CPKC. That's one. That's one railroad now. And so now there's there's the sick big. There's there's basically two big ones in Canada, two big ones in the Western U.S., two big ones in the Eastern U.S. So that's the Norfolk Southern CSX, the Western guys. Union Pacific, BNSF. BNSF is the Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett Railroad. Uh, and then you have Canadian National is the other Canadian one. And then you have a bunch of, uh, we call them short lines. There's about five or 600 short lines, which are, um, some of those are kind of rolled up into, you know, private equity, you might own a hundred of them or something, but they'll do, you know, we said first and last mile type thing. Some some of them are tourist railroads, things like that. But the, the ones that I, I mostly focus on those, the six big guys. So in 2020, you know, they, as pandemic hits, everybody thinks that the world's going to fall off a cliff. So, you know, uh, business basically stops for a few months, but then it starts coming back very rapidly. Um, you know, the stimulus measures and whatnot, but already the second half of 2020 and certainly 2021, railroad demand rather strong, uh, you know, different, different commodities, uh, different, you know, different trends, but generally very strong. Now, what happened when COVID first hit? The railroads did a lot of furloughs, so they cut their workforce significantly. Then the demand starts coming back really quickly, and they didn't have enough people. And that caused all sorts of service disruptions, a lot of problems. Regulators got upset. Um, you know, shippers were outraged, uh, contributed to a lot of supply chain disruptions that, you know, you've talked about in your show. And so, so that was a situation going into sort of 21, kind of remain that way into 2022. 2023 as we stand right now. So if you look at the first six months, there's there's a big dichotomy in railroad demand. 
So you have some stuff that's just absolutely miserable, some stuff that's holding up rather well. Uh, and the miserable, the most, you know, on the miserable side, what's worse right now is what we call the intermodal demand, the stuff that gets shipped in containers, you know, some of it gets shipped from Asia, consumer goods. You know, people, Americans are not buying goods anymore. They're buying airline tickets. You know, they're not, they're buying services. They're not buying, you know, goods that shipped from a built in Asia, shipped over on a, you know, ship and coming into Walmart. And so that stuff is down by double digit. I mean, that's really, that's really weak right now. And that's a very different business from that's not a very high margin business. I mean, it's good, but it's not, it tends to be the lower margin business for the railroads, the intermodal stuff. What is doing very well? And then there's other stuff that's not doing very, you know, anything related to housing has been, been having a rough time over the past six months. Maybe that'll be coming back now. We'll see. Um, a few others. The stuff that's held up pretty well is, you know, the bulk goods. Coal, actually. Coal is still, believe it or not, the number one commodity. I mean, this, it sounds like I'm talking about 1870 here, but it's actually the number one commodity in volume terms that the railroads still carry. I mean, it's not intermodal is actually number one, but if you kind of put that aside, the actual as an individual commodity. So coal is definitely on a secular decline and we're just not using it as much. I mean, you, you use coal for two things. You use it to make electricity, you use it to make steel. Um, and both of, the, both of those businesses have held up very well in the past couple of years because of the European energy shortage. You know, there's been export demand. Um, natural gas prices were very high. So a lot of utilities were, okay, let's use coal. Um, natural prices have now, gas prices have fallen off a cliff. So everybody's kind of waiting for, you know, is coal going to start? Be, but we haven't really seen that yet. Another thing we'll be looking for in, you know, for second quarter earnings season, what's the coal situation for the railroads? Um, I can tell you, you know, another area that's very good is, you know, construction materials for building these giant, I mean, there are plants going on. I mean, we're, we're the United States is experiencing a manufacturing boom and we're not seeing it in the, on the residential side or seeing the non-residential side. But, you know, if you look at the auto plants, the battery plants, semiconductor plants, I mean, these are multi-billion dollar facilities that are going up across, particularly the Southeast United States, Texas. Um, but even, you know, Ohio is, isn't that, that Intel thing is going up in Ohio. And do, you, do you have an inkling as to why that might be? Is it just sort of secular forces, random forces? Does it have anything to do with, uh, you know, economic policy that uh, privileges or you know, benefits, rewards, uh, reshoring? Yeah, so, so certainly that's, that's the couple of trends that everybody's kind of watching. So, so the railroads kind of have a couple of trends, uh, tailwinds that they're hoping uh, you know, they're not growing right now and they haven't been for a long time. Railroads have been shrinking for many years and they're promising there. The problem with when you shrink all the time, the shippers hate it, the workers hate it, the regulators hate it. And everybody's been on their back the past year and a half. I mean, it's just, they're hearing it from and then this Norfolk Southern derailment. We've talked about that, but they've just been under a lot of the labor talks that made all the headlines last fall. They've been on a lot of pressure. So they're just promising we're going to grow. We're going to grow. We're going to grow. Couple of tailwinds. So one you mentioned nearshoring, onshoring. They're hoping that as a lot of um, you know manufacturing comes back from Asia, railroads would be in a good position to handle a lot of that. So and that's I think to, to answer, I'm kind of weaving around your question here, but to answer your question directly, I think nearshoring, onshoring has definitely contributed in a big way to this to the infrastructure boom that we're seeing now. Government subsidies as well. The infrastructure bill 
the Inflation Reduction Act, which is you know a lot of uh, climate friendly energy type infrastructure. So that's definitely been helpful. Um, and a lot of that hasn't really come in yet. I think from what I understand, a lot of the infrastructure spending is still kind of out there. It hasn't really started yet or not, not in, in a big way. So you have all those. The other big tailwind for growth is that the railroads are much more environmentally sustainable than trucks. So you're emitting less. It's very efficient. I mean, if you put like a double stack container on a train, you're shipping a lot of heavy stuff over very long distances. You know, that's a lot of bang rather than putting on a truck and, you know, you're also using the highways and that's, yeah, you know, damaging the highways, whatever. So, I mean, a lot um, of people made a lot of promises about electric trucks. So far, those promises have been a little uh, short in the delivery phase, but that doesn't mean that, you know, in five, 10 years, it, they won't deliver. So that is a very big, uh, if you ask a railroad what keeps them up at night, I think autonomous trucking would, is very scary. Now there's autonomous trains too. But interestingly, for whatever reason, regulators have looked much more kindly on the truck side than they have on the railroad side. So maybe this is union politics, I'm not sure. But um, railroads, they really want to move even right now to, right now, typical train would be two-person two crews. You have a conductor, you have an engineer. They want to move to one-person trains. And there's a lot of resistance in Congress. There's actually a bill in the Senate right now that would ban that. That would. That would I mean, that's would pretty be- bare bones. Uh, moving from two employees to one for to a, one on, you know, to a one whole on a, line of coal, like it's on an eight thousand foot train. It's yeah. As as someone who's you know, they'll the railroads will swear that it's that it's safe. Now they'll have you know conductors driving alongside of the train, kind of thing. Um, a lot of the technology. This is over my head, but the you know a lot of communications technology is now very automated and. Um, but but I kind of agree with you, Jack. I mean, it sounds it just you know as a non-engineer, it sounds it's a little bit, a little bit much. But then again, you know, nobody in the cab of a truck. Maybe that's a little bit much. Too, I'm not sure. But but that is that is a concern. Um, perhaps one day there will be autonomous trucks and autonomous trains. I don't know. But trucks seem to have the head start. Now the technology, as you kind of alluded to, the trucks there hasn't been as. I mean, there there are examples of. I think there are trucks in Texas already running autonomously right now, but extremely limited, maybe just on, you know, one stretch of a highway between, you know, in a, in a place with good weather or whatever in Texas. So we're still a long way from there, but it is a threat. Got it. So uh, there's at least two segments. There's intermodal, and it sounds like that's what in the shipping industry is called a container. So huge, those huge metal boxes people are familiar with. And then the second category is just kind of, raw commodities and materials so building materials coal so the fur intermodal is somewhat weak is it is it weak relative to the you know extraordinarily strong of 2020 and 2021 uh but actually it's you know not not it's not bad it's mediocre or is it you know kind of in a industry recession type type point and then is uh how strong just how strong is this uh second category of raw materials whether it's building materials or uh coal or uh, other stuff yeah. So, so intermodal, I mean, you have to really go category by category. Intermodal is in recession. I don't think anybody would argue that. I mean, I've heard railroads say that, you know, that word come out of their mouth. So um, that is a, a recessionary. Uh, there, you know, there's railroads that uh, their intermodal volumes this year are down by double digits. So it's, it's um, that, that's rough. 
everybody's kind of waiting for the green shoots. And, you know, every now and then you'll hear an investor conference where, you know, a railroad or JB Hunt or Schneider, one of these big, you know, uh, they, they, these big intermodal trucking companies, they'll tell you, okay, yeah, well, it's, you know, maybe we see a little bit, a little bit of uh, encouraging signs here and there, but not nothing really yet. So we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, as far as um, some of the construction material, I mean, the railroads will tell you that's gonna that strength is gonna continue because of all the infrastructure spending still to come. We're hoping, you know, the railroads are hoping that housing starts. You know, there's as we talked about earlier, there's some green shoots there, so maybe that will help commodities like lumber is a big commodity that railroads carry. Um, then you have agriculture, and agriculture kind of you never know because that's that that can right now we're having a big drought in a lot of places where we grow grains. So grains would be like corn and wheat and soybeans. And that stuff is generally pretty good. But I think right now, last, I think there's there's a lot of drought conditions that, have, that are, are kind of making that a little difficult. Um, I know the Canadian grain harvest is absolutely massive. They had a fantastic harvest last year, but then the year before that, it was really bad. So, you know, sometimes it's just nature. You don't know. Um, autos, very, very important category. Shipping cars? Shipping cars. Mm. So they actually will take the cars from the factory, sometimes even from Mexico. That's a big thing now. All the major auto manufacturers, manufacturers including, you know, your European ones and even Asian ones, Toyotas. They all have big plants in a very specific area around Mexico, like central Mexico, where the rail, rail lines run right down. And they'll bring them to the dealerships. And that has been a big bright spot. Now, there's been a lot of growth. Now, that market was depressed because of the whole semiconductor issue mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that I think you've had people on your show talk about that, where the auto manufacturers are still not producing as many cars as they were 2016, 2017, 2018. Um, I don't believe, I don't think that's that's really gotten back to where it was, but it's grown from the low point during the pandemic for sure. So this year, it's a nice growth driver for the railroad volumes. That's a nice business for them. Um, you know, they you'll hear a lot of, Auto manufacturers and dealers complain that the railroads are not delivering enough. Some of that has to do with, you know, during the pandemic, they got rid of a lot of the, there's very special cars that you deliver, you know, as you imagine, autos on. They got rid of a lot of the cars during, you know, during the downturn and now they're scrambling to have enough. So perhaps a car shortage there, I mean, you hear that. Uh, but in general, that's another good category. Um, but yeah, steel, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of steel plants uh, coming back to the US um, and in Mexico, Canada. Uh, so yeah, it is, it is very much a mix, you know, a lot of goods, a lot of good, a lot of bad. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some forward guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage, owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. 
So can you tell us about the consolidation that's happened in the freight industry, the railroad industry? And I mean, 38% operating profit margins, you said that's you know similar to a cloud business. Those are not something you'd expect from, I mean, a, a railroad. You said that for airlines, it's 4%. Uh, I mean, how big of a role do you think industry consolidation plays in that? I mean, do you think that it's kind of a an oligopoly where you know companies are kind of you know making money uh, at the at the expense of of consumers and also it's the type of thing where you know if if I get charged you know all this money for an airline ticket I feel personally aggrieved whereas if you know a, a company that I buy a product from if they get their prices raised up from you know consumers have no idea about about freight because you know when's the, when's the last time an individual consumer you know ships something on a on a rail line. Um, uh, um, yeah, and, and I guess we can also just say, you know, as you know, just the businesses of airlines, so many have gone bankrupt and the stocks have kind of uh, been, you know, roughly flat for a decade, um, uh, you know, with a handful of exceptions, whereas rail stocks uh, and, and trucking stocks similar have been on an absolute tear as profit margins have been you know, very high and uh, it's been a very consistent business that, that shareholders have uh, been rewarded and they reward, uh, you know, the, the the stock price. So yeah, just tell us a little bit about those secular forces of consolidation. Yeah. So interesting anniversary coming up. We're coming up on our 200th anniversary of the railroad industry in the United States. The very first railroad in the United States was in Baltimore in 1828, maybe it was 27, something like that. And the, you know, some of your, if you know about American history, the, uh, you know, railroads, that was the business for, you know, very instrumental during the Civil War. And then kind of in those, you know, that second half of the 19th century, this was the biggest business in America. I mean, this was how J.P. Morgan became J.P. Morgan. He helped finance the railroads. This was how, you know, modern management techniques came into being through through the railroads. Um, I, I believe like the Penn Central was the biggest employer in the United States for, for, for a while. Um, and then, you know, the turn of the century and you start to get airplanes, you start to get trucks, you start to get, pers- you know, cars, personal automobiles. And the railroad starts to gradually, you know, just to lose, lose a lot of its business. And really by the 1960s, railroads were pretty much on death's door. And so the metaphor for that was the Penn Central went bankrupt and I think it was 1970. It almost took Goldman Sachs down, by the way. Um, I believe they were invested a, a lot in their commercial paper. And uh, yeah. they, yeah, um, big, big thing. The government was very involved in that. Uh, and so after that Penn Central bankruptcy, Washington stepped in. They created sort of one big freight railroad called Conrail for the East, it was mostly East Coast. And then they created one passenger railroad, which is Amtrak. Conrail eventually was privatized. That's well, kind of another story. But um, Amtrak, as you know, still exists, still government. But in 1980 was kind of the seminal moment for the modern railroad industry, freight railroad industry. Congress passed something called the Staggers Act which deregulated how airlines can charge, you know, the, the prices they can charge. Airlines or railroads? Did I say airlines? Yeah, I do yeah. that all the time. Yeah, we, <laughs> railroads. I do that all the time, sorry. But the railroads and uh, airlines, by the way, only uh, they were deregulated in the same period, two years earlier, 1978. <laughs> but we're talking railroads now. So Staggers Act deregulates what they can charge. It allows them to dump some of the businesses. They don't passenger business. If it wasn't making money, they can dump it. They had some track in the middle of nowhere. They were allowed to get rid of it. Um, consolidation was allowed, probably even encouraged. And then over the course of the next 20 years or so, 
you had all these just big deals. Um, you know, you just had one very large deal after another. So you just, had, didn't you say it was only one company that was privatized? But but how so how was uh, it consolidated? It started as one company. Sorry. So yeah, let me be clear. So the the company there was a company called Penn Central it was a private sector company. Pieces of that were actually taken and formed this new government owned freight company called Conrail. But competing with Conrail or existing alongside with, side it were 50, 60, I don't know how many other private sector railroads that still exist. A lot of them still struggling. Some of them maybe had niches here and there. You know, we were doing coal from the trucks couldn't do whatever, but a lot of them were struggling. So, so no, I, I'm glad you cleared that up. I'm sorry. Conrail was just, you know, one. And the reason why they didn't let it go is because, you know, Penn Central was just so big. And they were serving a lot of, you know, politically important areas in the Northeast and stuff. And there's a lot of, you know, unions were involved and, and, and all that. So they, they just created um, this Conrail company. And then in the, in the, during the Reagan administration, I think it was, after Staggers Act, you had all this consolidation starting. The government sold, they did an IPO of Conrail. And then eventually it was broken up into Norfolk Southern bought part of it. CSX bought the other part. And that's how it is today. So there's two railroad, two big railroads in the East today, CSX, Norfolk Southern. Um, but you had just a lot of, a lot of big mergers, you know, Union Pacific and Southern Pacific and, you know, Burlington Northern and Santa Fe, which is now BNSF, which in 2008 and nine or something like that, that's when Berkshire stepped in, purchased that. Uh, so you just had round after round of mergers and culminating in the one that just took place in April, as I mentioned earlier, CPKC, uh, which is still the smallest of the big six, but a little bigger now. So n now let's connect it with the, the U.S. economy. So I know back in the day when, when railroads were so economically, you know, at the core of everything, people would talk about rail car loadings as, as they talk now about, you know, a purchasing manager's index or some sort of economic reading that everyone talks about now. You know, everyone in 1929 was talking about you know, if you're, books about uh, the Great Depression. We're talking about rail car loadings and stuff like that. Um, I mean, how how economically significant is it now, given that uh, the the freight business, the container business, intermodal business, has been in a, you know, a recession over the past year, even as the U.S. economy has not, and demand for goods has been high, but companies have been supplying that demand with goods that they have, you know, in their, in their back room and they've been destocking their inventory instead of shipping new inventory. And, you know, as a recent author of a book, American Places, a profile of local economies across the U S what are you seeing, you know, economically uh, across the nation? Yeah. So when I talk about some of these trends, the book that I wrote American Places, that was from 2020, I wrote that in 2021 and 2022. So slightly outdated, but, um, I shouldn't say outdated, but it's, uh, yeah. It's, it will, On Amazon, it said it came out in 2023. It did come out in 2023. So okay. it was work that I, it was actually stuff that I published for Econ Weekly, my newsletter, that I published in 2023, but written in 2021, 2022. So yeah, just a, but, but good question. Clear that up. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the two most famous people probably, you know, Alan Greenspan always used to look at rail car loadings. Warren Buffett always says the same thing. And, you know, who am I to question them? But, you know, I think it does probably speak a lot to the industrial and the manufacturing side of the economy, which some people stay, say is still a bellwether. Perhaps it is, uh, you know, the purchasing manager index. You mentioned that, you know, on the manufacturing side, people look at that very closely. So I'm not going to say that, that, it's, that it's not. I do, 
I do want to emphasize, though, that if you look at the U.S. economy today, it's just so service heavy. I mean, I the three the, there's three sectors that that so I call them the three H's. You know, there's healthcare, there's higher education, and there's housing, and those three sectors are so massive in terms of employment, in terms of investment, and also in terms of their inability to really gain any productivity. I mean, they're not, it's not easy to extract productivity from those, you know, healthcare, for example. And so I think you get a, almost a better picture of what's going on by looking at the service sector. Um, in the 0809 recession, I mean, one, the one sector that held up reasonably well was healthcare. Um, and it's like 20% of the economy now. So that was like a, a very important anchor. Um, and that's doing pretty well now too. Now you had like, of course, in 2008-09, you had all these pressures on state, local, federal government budgets. So there were a lot of layoffs. You don't have that today. It's almost just the opposite. It may be coming, but you look at you know state and local governments. I think it was on your show, Jack, there was the former um, president of the Dallas Fed, mm-hmm. Kaplan, who was talking about there's still a lot of uh, money sitting on the accounts of these state and local governments that that they, they that still need to be spent. I mean, you know, very serious amounts of money, enough to move the economy. So it's a long, I mean, I'm rambling, but it's a long way of saying that I'm a little cautious about saying that just because intermodal rail load car, you know, rail car loadings are down, that that's going to presage some kind of downturn because, and it's been like that for, you know, six months now. So, you know, where's the recession? Maybe it's coming, but... So I haven't read uh, Airline Weekly, but Railroad Weekly kind of gave me a, a subscription to, and it is excellent in depth. And anyone who wants to learn more about it in depth has, has got to check it out. You are a very disinterested observer. You're not, you know, selling a narrative of, oh, it's always going to be a recession or, oh, it's always going to be a boom time. You you call them like you see them and uh, exceptionally uh, in depth. So folks who, who you know, really want to get in the weeds on the rails should, uh, they, they got to check that that out. Uh, I want to close out just talking about the airlines. You referenced some consolidation in the airlines and uh, things that airlines were doing. You're talking about your book with Delta Airlines. I mean, how much of a different business is it to you know the the the, cowboy, the wild west of the '90s when companies were going bankrupt, you know, every day? And then just tell us a little bit more about it about the points about the the joint ventures, as well as is this only a U.S. phenomenon or are international companies doing this as well? Yeah, well, the U.S. is unique. Um, you know, we could, that's a whole another discussion about Europe. For example, is not consolidated. It's very fragmented. There's been some some mergers, but still very fragmented. There's reasons for that, which you know I won't get into now, but um, unless you want to. But uh, the the uh, the U.S. airline industry is somewhat unique in that it's very consolidated. And as you mentioned, um, it is. And yeah, and as it, as you mentioned, Jack, I, I you know um, don't have any. You know, I even don't. I don't make any forecasts or anything. I'm not. Uh, the the railroads are not you know yeah and you're not even a stock analyst the stocks to you are all yeah. are secondary you focus really on the fundamentals of the business which is correct you know, in today's hyper financialist society and you know I'd include myself in this I could I could tell you what the stocks of Delta Airlines could do but the fundamentals I'm not you know following that closely you are the inverse pyramid of that and I think that is a a true uh you know tr- tr- true like follower of the fundamental business and that's really important. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. And, and uh, yeah, and, and also my, you know, the customers that, that I have are from a wide, you know, don't think of them as just railroads that I have to please. I mean, it's, it's, it's all sorts of everything from analysts to, to shippers, to regulators, to whatnot. And, and 
Um, on the airline side, I did want to say quickly that, uh, so the airline side, I do work for a company called Skift. I think it's important to plug them as well. Skift is kind of, we call ourselves like the Bloomberg of travel. And they, um, so I write on the airline side, we have people do hotels. We have two people who do, uh, you know, all sorts of travel. Yeah. And, and Airline Weekly is as your, your report that you started and, and Skift uh, acquired Airline Weekly. So that, that's correct. In 2018. So I started in 2004. In 2018, Skift acquired Airline Weekly. And I'm currently an employer employee for Skift. So yeah, thanks for clearing that up. So yeah, I encourage you all that. And then, yeah, to go back to your question, I think we talked a lot about it earlier in the conversation, but I do think that the airline industry in the U.S. is rather healthy. Again, it's not 35% margins. It's, I said five, but I think, I think it's realistic to think that some of the big airlines like Delta can achieve double-digit margins consistently. You'll have shocks every couple of years. That's inevitable. But if you look over the course of the a good, you know, a great way to say it is if you look at the first decade of the 2000s, absolute nightmare, bankruptcies, constant losses. But if you look between 2010, 2019, very consistent profits, particularly the second half of that decade, very consistent. Um, you know, you can count on airlines collectively to do, you know, low single digits, uh, you know, low double or sorry, high single digit, excuse me, low double digit operating margins. So I think, and, and for all those reasons that I told you, there's a lot of structural changes in the airline industry um, over the course of those years as the mergers, uh, the ancillary revenues we talked about, the capacity discipline. Um, we, we haven't even talked about some of the competitive dynamics internationally, a lot of other, you know, uh, some of the competing airlines, went bankrupt abroad and things like that. So a lot, a lot of reasons. Um, planes are much more efficient than they were. Planes keep getting, you know, it's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary, but planes keep getting more efficient. Uh, so, you know, it's a technology reason as well. Um, and then, yeah, the mileage, I mean, that's always been true with the mileage. You know, e even during the bad days, that was always the crutch that the airlines had. They could sell miles. And, you know, and the U.S., it's just kind of, the scale of these U.S. programs. I mean, I don't know what Delta has. Delta Sky Miles, 200 million people in that program now. I don't know. Maybe that's a stretch, 150 million. I mean, it's at wow. least that. Just that's how many, you know, 320 million Americans. I mean, <laughs> it's a huge, huge number. Um, whereas if you go over to Europe, the biggest program, Air France, sometimes 30, 40 million. It's just not on the same scale. So the U.S. are very lucky at that. And, you know, and, and frankly, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I don't, follow banks, but I'm sure that a company like JP Morgan makes a lot of money on their card, their co-branded, co, you know, mileage card that they have. They have two of them, actually. JP Morgan has one with United and they have one with Southwest as well. So American Express, their big relationship was with Delta. City has American. You can just keep going on. You know, Bank of America is Alaska. You can go on and on, but um, there's that nice symbiotic relationship there. So I went through, you know, a lot of reasons why perhaps this is not your, you know, grandfather's airline industry. Um, still a very, 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 very difficult business, though, in the sense that, like I said, requires a lot of capital, requires a lot of labor, always subject to shocks. And we didn't even get too much into it in this conversation. But another reason for the supply shortages in the number of flights and another reason why the airline industry is, you know, structurally difficult is because you are dependent 
on government policy for so much and just government services for so much. So I mentioned how- Like, like, like what? Air traffic control. Ah. So I mentioned how railroads own, invest in and own their own tracks. Not true in the railroads. Totally dependent on air traffic controllers. And the, the, the federal, you know, the FAA runs that. And air traffic control, um, the FAA is extremely short staffed this summer, which is why I don't know when we'll air this, but, you know, we're talking um, now we're in the middle of, you know, a situation where a lot of people are getting stranded at airports. A lot of flights are getting canceled, you know, and there's blame going back and forth. The airlines fault, the FAA's fault, but certainly I think even the FAA would admit that there's, there's a problem there. I mean, there's, there's a serious understaffing problem. And is that companies have been prioritizing profitability rather than coverage? And yeah, I mean, I see Sec- Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg on TV and you know, sometimes I'm in the gym and if there's no audio on, but I just know, up oh, there's going to there's something wrong with the rails or the planes or trains. Something's when wrong. You see, when you see Mayor Pete, you know, there's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> the airlines are not running on time. <laughs> the problem is, I think it seems to be, and I'm not an expert in air trip by any means. I'm not an expert in airline operations. I should qualify this you know, practicing medicine without a license here. But I, um, it does seem that the FAA understaffing is a big concern. Of course, summertime, you've got thundersh- thunderstorms and stuff like that. But, you know, I think we've always had those. Yeah, and this, this goes to show the difference between the stock price and the fundamental nature of the business. You know, stock prices you know, tend to be leading. Obviously, the stocks tanked uh, in Mar- March 2020, and they bottomed somewhere around the spring of 2020, and they actually you know, started to rally pretty vigorously, you know, and through throughout 2021, even as the fundamentals of their business you know, were, were pretty fe- feeble, as you say. And actually, uh, when they actually the fundamentals started to become good in 2022, that's when they stopped rallying. Um, yeah, so- and and some of that was, I, I think maybe there was concern. And again, I'm not a stock ass, but I think in 2022, you had a situation of uh, from the spring to the summer you had fuel prices skyrocket. And I think, yeah, and I think a lot of stock investors were concerned about that. So even though demand was coming back, I think there was, you know, like, well, and it is true that, you know, I mentioned that four or 5% operating margin, that was a little bit low for, you know, and and I think that that, a lot of that was fuel. So we'll see how they do. What kind of hedging do the airlines do? I know Delta kind of owns a refinery that's that's kind of a part hedge uh, is it true so airlines used to hedge and then they kind of abandoned it or yeah. So Delta, as you mentioned, they're very unique because, you know, they bought, they actually bought a, a, a refinery near Philadelphia. Um, very unique situation. Uh, some airlines don't hedge at all. American won't go near it. They'll, you know, they did, they just say over the long run, it doesn't pay Southwest, very aggressive in their hedging. Um, and then if we go abroad, you know, also a lot of, now, if you go abroad, you also start getting into interest rate hedging. I'm sorry, I said interest rate. You do have that, but what I meant to say is exchange rate hedging. So that's a big deal for the U.S. airlines don't care so much because international, it's not that big a percentage of their business. And the international demand that exists is a lot of that is U.S. originating, paying in dollars. So it's not, foreign exchange is not too big of a deal for most U.S. airlines, but it's a huge deal, you know, if you're in... I'm trying to think of example. I don't want to say Turkey because that's a unique situation, but if you're in Argentina or, you know, um, yeah, it's, it becomes a very difficult situation if you're, you know, selling your flights in pesos and all of your costs. Because that's the thing, you're paying your planes in dollars. You're paying for oil, your fuel in dollars. You're paying for your, you know, 
it's the only thing you're usually really paying in local currency is your labor. So that's. But are there some interesting things there, like Turkish Airlines, which I think actually, as a consumer, it has a pretty good reputation. Uh, Turkish Turkish Airlines. Um, I have some things where it's it's paying all of its employees in Turkish lira, but it's it's uh, earning revenues in dollars, and obviously the depreciation of the lira would make that a very profitable uh, situation. Is that is that true or or no? Very roughly, um, it's it's a mix between. I mean, there's a breakdown. Uh, I was actually looking looking at this this morning. Ironically, it's not Turkish, but there's a there's another airline called Pegasus in Turkey. And off the top of my head, I want to say like a third of their revenues were in euros. Another twenty percent was in dollars, and the rest in lira. And then the cost side maybe is like forty percent of their costs were in lira or something like that. So there is, yeah, that can be that's that can be um, helpful. Now Turkey is. We, we, by the way, at Airline Weekly, my colleague Edward Russell and I, we do a podcast every week, and we talk about Turkey a lot because Turkey happens to be one of the fastest growing airline markets in the world. Turkish Airlines and this other airline, Pegasus, I mentioned, also one of the incredible story. I mean, they you probably heard of the Gulf carriers, Emirates, mm-hmm. and you know, growing like mad and ordering planes like crazy. Turkish Airlines is kind of the new Emirates, and the, the in India is another, you know. Lot, lot of new aircraft orders, a lot of things like that. Um, so yeah, there's all these like incredibly interesting stories uh, outside of the U.S. as well. We focus this conversation on the U.S. for obvious reasons, but um, but yeah, Tur- Turkey's definitely uh, it's it's if you're in the airline industry, you're you're all over Turkey, right? You're watching Turkey very closely. Yeah, so uh, people should check out the Railroad Weekly and the Airline Weekly. We'll include links to that in the description. And then, of course, your, your book, uh, Glory Lost and Found, and uh, most recently, uh, American Places, a profile of local economies across the U.S. Jay, it's been a pleasure having you on. My final question for you is, what do you think is the best-run airline uh, operationally, financially, uh, best, you know, best consumer brand that's outside of the United States? Oh, outside the United States. That's interesting. So, so the champion in terms of profitability and just, you know, absolute genius business model is Ryanair. They're based in Ireland. Uh, Ryanair's just, um, you know, they're incredible about just buying airplanes at the right time, getting good deals. Uh, you know, they're traditionally not famous for their customer service, just the opposite. Um, they got a little better, I think, over time. But their CEO is quite a character. His name is Michael O'Leary. Um just Google him, watch a video. Just do, don't do it in front of any children because he, he's uh, he's got the uh, he's got a, got a quite a profane profane mouth. But um, yeah, incredibly interesting business model uh, where they just um, really you know intense utilization of the aircraft, and um, you know they they pay their workers well. It's not that they don't pay them. It just the, the way everything's utilized just works out really well, and. They, you know, take advantage of kind of smaller airports that don't charge as much. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's one that comes to mind. I mean, Turkish Airlines, as I mentioned, is one to watch. Uh, and, I, and I won't go on any further, but uh, but I think, I think if, if you, you know, gun to my head, I'll say Ryanair. Mm-hmm. Got it. Well, thanks. Well, mm-hmm. Jay, thanks so much for coming on, sharing your, your insight about planes and trains. And thanks, everyone, for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. 
Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.